you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. From the Moon Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, how animators are keeping Hollywood hopes alive. Then Mark Maron's comedy special, End Times Fun, was recorded before the pandemic, but its message couldn't be more relevant. It usually does take something tragic to shake us out of uh, the trance that we call a life uh, into something uh, a little larger than ourselves. And comedian Josh Thomas has a new show, and its title is also pretty timely, Everything's Gonna Be Okay. That's Today in the Frame. We'll be right back. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Welcome to The Frame. I'm John Horn. As we have reported over the past several weeks, the entertainment industry is in deep trouble. Concert venues, movie theaters, and comedy clubs are closed. There's no more Broadway or live-action television and film production. But there is one show business segment that is weathering the storm surprisingly well. Here to talk about it is Ollie Green. She's the vice president of animated productions at Adult Swim, and she joins us from her home in Atlanta. Ollie, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Let me start with this. Why is animation particularly well-suited to deal with the impact of the coronavirus? So for animation, it's collaborative, but everybody is already working independently. And I'm mostly talking about 2D and somewhat 3D, but everybody is already sort of networked and using a lot of the software already. So just the big change is to send everyone home and not have that immediate feedback. One of the things I know about animation is that typically there are huge render farms, computers that are doing the animation computer work. If you are working remotely, how do you process all of the data? Because a lot of home computers can't really handle that kind of processing. Yeah. So, John, that actually is sort of the pain point right now for everybody. Um, A lot of the residential Wi-Fi speeds are just not up to the challenge. So what we've been doing is kind of going back to Ethernet and um, going back to hard drives. And what about the voice actors? Because typically you are animating to voices and they are reading scripts. So how has that process changed? Because clearly your voice talent can't be in with a director, in with a recording studio. How do you manage that? So some of the voice actors that we work with have home studios. We are sending higher-end microphones to some of our regular talent. When we're not able to do that, we're using Scratch Audio. So you've got a a bunch of series, some in production, some that are probably in post. Overall, what series are affected, or do you feel like pretty much your whole slate is moving forward at the right pace? A lot of our shows deliver well in advance of their premiere, 
So we have Robot Chicken coming back because they had already delivered. But as a stop motion show, that is also one that looks a little bit more like live action once you start shooting it. Um, With Rick and Morty, we are in the process of animation and rough assembly. So we have our animation house that sent all of their animators home and their compositors home. Um, I don't know how technical you want to get, but basically the delivery process for each of these scenes to the show unit is basically the same. We're talking with Ollie Green, the vice president of animated production for Adult Swim. A lot of animated shows do their pre- and post-production in the States, but a lot of the actual frame-by-frame work is done in other countries like Canada or South Korea. How are you managing the international workflow, and how do you go about trying to ensure that they have safe practices in place at work? We're making sure that each studio that we work with in every country is following the appropriate guidelines. You know, this seems like nobody, we're, we're not really doing the sweatshop thing. <laughs> you know, like we work with reputable studios. So, you know, in Canada, that means everyone's working from home. Mexico, those studios that we work with are also doing the same. So much of what happens in animation is quick and that writers and shows can react to the news. Do you see some Adult Swim shows being topical? That's something that we can do in our small program. But um, no, normally, actually, our shows have a pretty long turnaround time. The writing period is fairly long. And then the process of animating is even longer. You know, South Park can do it for sure. None of our shows are set up like that. It's, it's no secret that broadcast networks, cable channels, and streaming platforms that rely on live-action scripted content pretty soon are going to run out of new shows because they can't make them. Could this, in a kind of an odd way, be a boom time for animation because you are able to deliver new and original content when a lot of other people can't? Um, absolutely. I think we're seeing that. You know, I think it had already started booming in that there are just so many options from preschool all the way through to adults for animated content. You want to add that, you know, I think industry-wide, there's this overwhelming sense of gratitude that we, you know, almost a survivor's guilt that we are still able to make these shows. We've always been so lucky to be here, but now more than ever. Ollie Green is the vice president of animated production at Adult Swim. Ollie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, John. Coming up on The Frame, Mark Maron's new comedy special is called End Times Fun, but he recorded it months before the pandemic. I don't think that I could tell you when I'll be coming back this way again And I got The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. There is no doubt that these are extremely strange times that we're living in. And when you see a headline that reads, Mark Maron's Netflix special predicted the pandemic, it kind of drives the point home. Maron's comedy special is called End Times Fun. It came out on March 10th, a day before the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a pandemic. And a lot of it feels oddly prescient now, even though the special was recorded several months ago. In his show, the comedian, actor, and podcast host talks about his feeling that the world is ending and that we're nearing an environmental collapse. Here's a clip, and then we'll get into our chat. But I think on a deeper level, the reason we're not more upset about the world ending environmentally is I think you know, all of us in our hearts really know that we did everything we could. You know, we really... <laughs> Right? I mean, we really did. I mean, think about it. We, you know, we, we, we brought our own bags <laughs> to the supermarket. Yeah, that's about it. Like, we brought, we brought the bags right when they told us. We brought them. How do you think this thing is landing? Because what you're talking about is so oddly on the nose. For me, when I was younger, uh, watching comedians uh, the, and why I love comedy is that they were able to sort of, you know, in a fairly short order, kind of sum up big ideas, no matter how horrifying, and make them digestible and funny for people. And I think this this special is doing that around the times we're living in. I, You know, sadly, you know, the timing for the world uh, is not great, but the timing for this particular hour of work is is very uh, uh, timely. When you were putting this together and pitching it to Netflix, was there a core idea you were presenting? And if so, how would you describe what that kind of thesis was? Well, it, you don't pitch the idea of a special to Netflix. You know, and as a comic and someone who's done two previous specials with them, you know, they give you a special or they don't. There's no outside of them saying, yes, you can do a special and we will pay you for it. There's no other real creative discussion with Netflix uh, around material. There was a discussion around the title of it, which is sort of, uh, which was kind of interesting and kind of funny in that the original title for this special that I was very locked into and it was helping me kind of shape it in my mind was Jeremiah, uh, you know, which is sort of a, a, a woeful screed or rant. Um, but Robbie uh, Praw over at Netflix was like, you can't call it that. And I was like, well, why not? He's like, well, no one's going to know what that is. And I said, yeah, but they can look it up. He's like, no, <laughs> people need to, you know, they need to know when it comes up on the menu by the title that it's a comedy special. And I pushed back a bit, but then it was sort of, and he, but he stood his ground, and I really think he was right. But in terms of the thinking around pulling the material together, is I a through line for me was, you know, how do we know what is what is real and what is true, and why do we believe in things, and what does it mean to have belief 
in relation to that truth. And also, you know, it's very clear to me and it should be to everybody else that, you know, we're in trouble environmentally, I think was the original. I think that was the easiest, most logical and and seemingly hard to avoid uh, truth about, you know, the condition of of the world and where we're going was environmental. So so it really the through line became about that, that there seemed to be a real issue with, you know, people settling on, you know, what is true and what isn't true. Uh, and that's usually playing up against their particular beliefs, which they feed the uh, information they want to, to buttress that, that, uh, those beliefs, but they could be, have nothing to do with the, the truth. And the idea that we live in a, an era now where people are like, yeah, but what is true? You know what I mean, man? It's like, I do, but we've got to land on something. But when you say you're thinking of, about calling it Jeremiah, I, I, like a lot of people would think about the book of Jeremiah and the Old Testament, the whole idea of this being almost a sermon, a call to action, as it is a comedy special, that you have a congregation, they're your audience, and you're saying, look, folks, uh, when the service is over, go out and do something. Don't just like think you're doing something by coming in here and using your your grocery bags or your recyclable straw, like go out and change the way you think about the world. It almost feels like on some level, your special is a call to action. It it is a call to action only in the sense of, you know, look at this. There's a way to look at that. We have to accept where we're at. You know, I'm not, I don't know if I'm actually saying, you know, everyone has to get out and do something. I am saying like, this is how I see it. And this seems to be what's happening and it's not good. So here's the information. I've provided it in a way that's digestible. It's horrifying. It's difficult. It's dark, but uh, you, you should sort of, I think it's probably the correct way to see this stuff. And do what you can is on you. Because I don't know, what what do you tell people to do, man? I mean, in terms of the timing, here we are. We're all isolated, quarantined, uh, secluded, and, you know, sort of bunkered in. So, I, I mean, the best I could do is is raise awareness. I mean, I don't know what to tell people to do. I mean, the, the momentum that it would take in the social, like, see, when you start having this conversation, you know, what needs to be done, who are the leaders that can take us there? Is it still possible to actually do anything to stop the momentum towards environmental uh, disaster or fascism? You would hope. Uh, and, and I and I hope. But I, I don't I don't know the path, man. Right. But one of the things that this special does raise, and I think you almost asked the question directly, is like, what is it going to take? What is it going to take for us to wake up and pay attention? Like, haven't we been entertained enough? Weird thing for me to say, but Jesus. (laughs) Like, isn't there something that could bring everyone together and just realize, like, we've got to put a stop to, like, almost everything. (laughs) Right? Oh, my God. What would it take? Something terrible. That's what brings people together. (laughs) Nothing good. I have to say, we have started as a family. I'm one of four boys. Every night at 6 o'clock, we get on a Zoom call, and we all talk, and we all check in with our dad, who is approaching 90 years old. But I was like, why didn't we do that before? Why do Everybody could get on a conference call once a week. We could check in with each other and come together. It's like, does it? take something like coronavirus or 9-11 or whatever for us to like put everything down and say, we're all in this together. Let's work together. Let's be together. Hey, I, you know, I hope that happens. You know, there still seems to be uh, some kind of, 
you know, partisan divide happening and aggressively propagandized on behalf of uh, this particular administration. But on a personal level, I think we all are at the very least because of this horror show that we're living in are going to be a little bit more adept at communicating with each other vis a vis our computers and whatnot. And I, I still don't know. I mean, I understand what you're saying, but what are, do you really believe that, that if and when we get through this, that you, you, you all are going to continue that tradition, a, a daily phone call with everybody? Um, I think it's important now because, you know, when you're isolated, isolation is, 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 is can be a, a dark thing. And for people that are alone, it's a, it's a heavy trip, you know, to be alone with your head and just be kind of filling it with distracting information or entertainment, but to sort of lose even the, the ability to go out and be in proximity to other people to feel part of a collective, even if you're not talking, uh, is, is, is good medicine. And to not have that is, it can be a heavy trip for some people. And I, and I hope that people are reaching out to friends and family to at least, you know, check in with them to get out of yourself a little bit and have that connection. But yeah, I mean, like I said in the special, it usually does take something tragic to shake us out of uh, the trance that we call a life uh, into something uh, a little larger than ourselves. But, you know, people are isolated also in their own bubbles of activity. You know, there is different levels of isolation, I think. I've been thinking about this, that even when life is normal, I mean, think about the size of your world and your particular bubble and your series of habits, and how much does that include everybody else? I mean, obviously, you and I talk to an audience, but but it's sort of odd you know, that there, isolation is, is a theme that preexisted this, uh, this moment that we're living through. Mark Maron's new comedy special is called End Times Fun. It's on Netflix. He's also an actor and a podcast host. Mark, stay safe and healthy, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, it's great talking to you, man, I, and, and you too. Uh, it, it sounds like you're doing good, I'm, and I'm glad to hear it. You sound well, and please stay well. Well, it's all right. Coming up on The Frame, the name of the new series from Josh Thomas is Everything's Gonna Be Okay, and he means it. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Josh Thomas is an Australian comedian and actor who lives in L.A. His new comedy series, Everything's Gonna Be Okay, aired on Freeform, formerly Disney Family, and it's available now on Hulu. The premise doesn't initially sound all that funny. Thomas plays a young man who has to look after his two half-sisters when their father dies from cancer. His character knows he's not exactly dad material, but he's going to try his best. We reach Thomas, like almost all of the recent guests on The Frame these days, at his home. I'm uh, in my house in L.A. I'm alone. It's me and my dog, John. You guys have the same name, which is wonderful. He's thrilled. He loves the pandemic, you know? Pandemics are big wins for dogs. (laughs) I think he might have organized it, to be honest. That's my dishwasher. (laughs) 
This is my dishwasher going out. <laughs> Can you pause your dishwasher for a moment? <laughs> I don't know how. <laughs> Sounds like it's so proud of itself, you know? <laughs> like it does the dishes and it's like, dun, 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 dun. but it goes for so long. It's a bit over the top. And to be honest, this week is like the first time I've ever heard the noise. I had no idea it made that noise, but I'm up here vending for myself. And it turns out my dishwasher has got a lot more personality than I realized. My dishwasher is now like my second best friend. I got my dog. I got my dishwasher. And that's, that's my life now. I want to talk a little bit about how you're dealing with all this in a sec. But I want to ask you first about your new show, Everything's Going to Be Okay. I want to play a scene from the series. This is where your character, Nicholas, has just been told by his father that he is terminally ill. And your love interest, Alex, who's played by Adam Faiso. Uh, arrives. The father, I should say, Darren, is played by Christopher May. If you're in love with a boy, I want to meet him before I die. Hi. Are you a secret Australian prince? <gasps> I'm so much more attracted to you now that I know you're rich. Do you want a segue? No. Okay. <laughs> and Okay. Let's do anal sex. Hi. Yeah. I'm uh, Nicholas's dad, Darren. I feel embarrassed. Nonsense. I already knew my son does anal sex. Probably terribly. Iced tea? <laughs> okay, here's the checklist. Pancreatic cancer, dying dad, gay relationship, kissing, anal sex, autism, kids drinking and taking someone else's prescription meds, and all this from a platform owned by the Walt Disney Company, <laughs> yeah. right? I don't know how I tricked them, man. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I did it. Yeah. There's a two episode arc about consent. Two episodes. That's a lot. I mean, for me, that's like what I'm interested in making. So I, I like shows that explore real life, explore issues. I try and deal with them in like a real way. If I'm going to, someone's going to buy a show of me, that's what it's going to be. Right. And they wanted to buy a show of me. And so that's, this is it. Um, yeah. That's what I like find engaging and there's just so much tv now like there's so many stories being told i think there's space for a show like this that really goes there it's just what i find interesting we're talking with josh thomas the creator and star of everything's going to be okay i want to play another clip this is where your character's younger sister matilda is delivering a eulogy at your father's funeral the actress is Kayla Cromer. I wasn't born with an inbuilt understanding of many things neurotypical people take for granted. Oh, I have autism. Surprise again. <laughs> I had to rely on my dad to interpret the world, to teach me how to do every little thing. So I carry him with me every day. Every time I tie my shoelaces or cross the road without dying or make eye contact with anybody, or demonstrate a reasonable amount of self-esteem. That is thanks to him going above and beyond. There are two really important things in this scene. One is your decision to have a character who is on the autism spectrum and equally critical to cast an actor who herself is on the spectrum. I guess that's a kind of a two-part question about writing the character and then casting the character. How did that come together? I was really surprised about how little I knew or understood about autism and how little all my friends knew or understood about it. And I got really interested in it. I really like people with like a different worldview. And I, I was like really into it and I wanted to do it. As far as autistic casting goes, I always think as much as you can get an actor that's as close to the performer, the better. 
but it was it's never been done. I don't think there's ever been um, a lead cast member that's autistic. We saw you know hundreds of autistic girls. At the beginning, we saw like four or five neurotypical girls. It's like just to see, and it's just startling and like how much better the autistic girls were, just for like lots of reasons. I think um, a lot of neurotypical people are playing into like stereotypes, which aren't that true and weren't very interesting. We thought it would be like a challenging casting process, but actually there were so many good options. One of the parents of someone who ended up casting to play Drea, Lillian, her mom was like, yeah, Lillian's a really great actor because autistic kids, especially autistic girls, have to learn how to mimic behavior and they're kind of like acting every day to fit into this world that isn't designed for them, which is like a really interesting idea. So... You know, at, at the beginning, we wanted to do it because we felt like it was the right thing to do. We hoped that we would be better. And then we went through the audition process and it was like, they were on such a different level of like quality and performance to the the other girls who could, you know, they were good actors, the other girls, but them pretending to be autistic is kind of like, now that I've done it, I look at it and like, and I just think it's like very weird actually to watch neurotypical people pretend to not be. We now know that thanks to the pandemic, you have a new and more meaningful relationship with your dishwasher <laughs> and your dog. What does that mean in terms of a second season for the show, of doing stand-up? Like, how are you not going crazy? How are you remaining engaged while you're still being a creative person? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. It's early days. I don't know what's going to happen over at Disney. I'm like at home at the moment, I'm like working on cleaning the house up and that's been something and I've got some pitches there and it's, we're doing them, you know, we had them all booked in and we're doing them over Zoom conferencing, but everyone's like not sure if they're buying things. So it's like uncertain. I don't feel like my life is a real sob story at the moment. I feel more worried about a lot of other people I'm just trying to enjoy being home with my dog and waiting to see. That's all you can really do. And we're working on series arcs, and I just had a big conversation with the studio about what season two would look like. We're carrying on as if the world is normal and making sure that we have like ideas and plans for when things go back to normal, whatever the new normal will look like. But that's all you can really do. Josh Thomas is the creator and star of Everything's Gonna Be Okay. Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Season one of Everything's Gonna Be Okay is available to stream on Hulu. And that is it for today. But a couple of notes before we go. Every day, KPCC and NPR are working to bring you fact-based information when you need it most. So please show your support right now so that we can continue our public service during the coronavirus pandemic. Any amount you give to KPCC is vital in helping us reach our spring fundraising goal, and you will be entered to win a MacBook Pro. So please give now at kpcc.org. And finally, as of Monday, The Frame will go on a temporary hiatus. While I'm really going to miss you and the show, our newsroom has been overwhelmed covering the pandemic. The Frame's exceptional production team will be redeployed to provide some much-needed help to KPCC's other shows, along with working with our great news anchors, hosts, and reporters. As for me, I won't be leaving the air entirely. You'll just hear me on different shows at different times. 
Thanks to the great team that produces The Frame and to Taylor McFerrin, who supplies our opening theme music. I'm John Horn at the Moon Broadcast Center. We'll see you sometime in the future. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.